0: Hey, howdy, space nerds. We received some pretty awesome news before the holidays that I'd like to share with all the listeners of this podcast. In less than two years since we started this podcast, we've reached a critical milestone. One million downloads. When I first pitched the idea back in 2015, I never would have imagined this outpouring of support. The success of this podcast has taken me places I never imagined I'd go, and it's been an incredible journey. I hope I'm able to properly capture the wonder and awe I experience out in the field and talking with the amazing guests of this program and bring it to you. But I want you to know this. This podcast is successful for one reason and one reason only. Because of listeners just like you. And for that, I thank you. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question... Are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Can't believe it's 2018 already. I'm really excited about this year because it's chock full of awesome space exploration missions. So, what's going up in 2018? Well, I reached out to Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor over at nasaspaceflight.com. I met Chris when covering launches out at Kennedy Space Center. He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to space exploration So much so, I always try and snag a desk next to his when I'm on assignment. I'm sure he's sick of all my stupid questions by now. Anyways, I asked Chris to come on the program to talk about all the missions he's excited about this year, including Falcon Heavy. I've got to say, this episode is a bit longer than usual, but it's because there's so much to tackle. So, Chris, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, it's great to be back, and uh, Happy New Year.
0: Hey, same to you, Chris. And uh, speaking of New Year, there's a lot of new... Uh, cool science missions that you are keeping your eye on when it comes to space exploration. Uh, Let's kick it off. There's a a duo of asteroid missions. Tell us about them.
1: Yeah, so this year we have uh, two um, asteroid sampling missions that are actually going to reach their respective targets. One is the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft from the Japan Space Agency, and the other is NASA's OSIRIX. OSIRIS-REx mission, which launched back in uh, September of 2016. So, uh, this year, Hayabusa 2 is going to reach the Ryugu asteroid, and OSIRIS-REx is going to reach Bennu this summer.
0: And what's going to happen when they get there?
1: So, both of the missions are targeted to actually land on the surface of the asteroid or come very close to the surface of the asteroid and collect samples that will then return back to Earth. So, the primary... Part of the missions this year is going to be actually getting them there and then getting them into stable proximity with their respective asteroids before lowering those spacecrafts down to the surface so they can do their collections of materials and then um, begin their journey back to Earth next year after they do some other investigations around those asteroids.
0: And I think it's really important that we point out um, that these sample return missions are really, really difficult, and there haven't been very many that have happened in the past. Kind of explain uh, why these are so special.
1: So the technology to actually go to an asteroid land and bring it back is incredibly difficult, right? You're talking about, at that point, not only your ability to safely rendezvous with Um, with an asteroid, Um, but then to also work in proximity with it, very close to it, then descend down to its surface. And, and we're talking about descending the entire spacecraft down to the surface. So we're not talking about, you know, a little, you know, this isn't like Star Trek where a little shuttle goes out from the enterprise lands and, and comes back. This is, you know, to keep with that analogy, like landing the entire enterprise on um, the surface of an asteroid and then coming back. So it it requires a type of propulsion that that we've seen become increasingly more useful, and that's um, ion propulsion technology, which allows spacecrafts to very energy efficiently change their trajectories and change their orbits and do a lot of stuff that traditional chemical thrusters really prevent us or have prevented us from doing in the past.
0: Um, I'm I'm really glad that that you put this on the top of your list because this is one of my most exciting things about 2018. I cannot wait uh, to see what happens this year with uh, Osiris Rex
1: yes and and osiris rex is is important for for a different reason, um, because not only is it going to the asteroid venue and going to you know touch the surface of it, collect samples and bring those samples back for us to study, which will help us understand the the leftover building blocks of the solar system and how our solar system formed, but it 's also going to be testing several earth protection. Um, possibilities, um, you know, as, as I'm sure we're all familiar with the big asteroid that hit Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaur population. Uh, you know, scanning the skies and and looking for potential asteroids that could pose a threat to Earth is is one part of the equation. But once you know, if we were ever to find an asteroid like that, we'd want to get it out of the way. And and movies like Armageddon, where you throw a nuclear bomb at it and shatter it into hundreds of different pieces. Not the best way to go about that because then (laughs) instead of one target, you have hundreds of targets coming at you. Um, So one of the things that that OSIRIS-REx is going to do is it's going to test what's called a gravity tug maneuver where you use the – mass of OSIRIS-REx to n- try to nudge the asteroid a little bit off of its current orbit and, and basically use um, the gravity field that OSIRIS-REx has. It's, it's very small, but every object technically has a, a gravitational attraction once you're in space. So we're going to try to use OSIRIS-REx to test out that gravitational nudge uh, element and see if we can actually move an asteroid that way.
0: So hope for humanity to prevent Armageddon. Um, that's very good news for us down here on Earth. Yes. So moving on, gone but not forgotten, the Cassini spacecraft is also on your list. Chris, uh, I thought that mission was done. What, why is it on your list still?
1: So Cassini is still on my list because even though Cassini ended its mission um, with its you know fiery plunge into Saturn's atmosphere last September... It takes years and years and years to review all of the data and all of the science that that mission has returned to us. And in the last you know, few months of its life at Saturn, Cassini was doing some pretty amazing things that it hadn't done in the earlier parts of its mission. And these included some of the ring-grazing dives where Cassini would actually go through the innermost part of Saturn's ring system. And then um, toward the latter part of its final orbits, it was actually brushing up against the top of Saturn's atmosphere and dip diving into Saturn um, and returning some really unique readings that that we'd never gotten before, and that we couldn't get until we were setting Cassini up for its final um, it, its final. Um, potentially life-protecting death into Saturn's atmosphere. So all of that data, while it was returned last year in the final days of Cassini's mission, scientists are analyzing and looking at all of that and comparing some of the... Um, farther encounters that it had in, in its final months of its life with Titan and Enceladus and comparing that to earlier data from the flyby. So while the spacecraft is gone, this mission is going to continue to give us a lot of scientific data and returns for years to come.
0: And it's already given us some phenomenal photographs. I urge you to go out there and check out some of the the wonderful pictures that are coming back from Saturn.
1: Yes, uh, and, and one of the most Spectacular and breathtaking ones that that I saw. It's actually the backdrop of my uh, desktop uh, screen here. is is the final planet wide mosaic that Cassini took uh, in September during one of its final orbits of Saturn, and it is just a beautifully. Breathtaking image of, of the dark side of Saturn looking toward the northern polar region, which is completely in daylight and, and, and the lit ring systems uh, from the sun. It, it's absolutely incredible. Yes, go, go look at the images Cassini has returned to us.
0: Well, moving on, you've got, um, you've got uh, something from Blue Origin on your list here. Chris, uh, what are you looking forward to from Blue Origin in 2018?
1: This might actually be the year that Blue Origin achieves the suborbital space tourism goal of actually launching uh, what they're calling test customers um, <laughs> uh, directly up into uh, a suborbital free flight. So people can experience microgravity for... Uh, a a couple minutes before returning back to Earth. Um, They had a very successful test flight of the upgraded version of their New Shepard rocket and the uh, crew capsule that will carry the the paying customers up to suborbital heights. Um, They had that test in December and everything went very, very well with that test and that was very crucial in order to maintaining the company's potential to actually pull off the first um, suborbital space tourism flight this year,
0: and the uh, the test dummy that went up on that flight.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so there th- there was a test dummy that they put on there to to measure a couple different things. You know, it wasn't just a, a publicity stunt or anything with the naming. Um, you know, to coincide with the release of of the Star Wars movie or anything like that. Um, it actually did serve a purpose. Um, it was on in there primarily to measure the the forces that. Uh, The dummy was exposed to, you can put different um, computer monitoring devices and patches on essentially crash test dummies to measure the amount of g-forces that they're exposed to during flight. And from what we know, now Blue Origin is a private company, so they don't have to reveal everything that they learned uh, from this test flight to us. But from from what we're hearing um, is that that crash test dummy came through the the flight uh, in in very good condition and really helped pave the way again for for keeping them on on track to
0: potentially pull this off this year. Thank you for your service, Mannequin Skywalker. We appreciate that. So moving on, Chris, um, you also have on your list of of things to follow in 2018 the search for Planet Nine. Bring us up to speed on this story.
1: Yes. So uh, depending on who you talk to in the uh, in in the space science community, this is a potentially um, shall we say contentious one of some people arguing that we already have planet 9 its name is pluto um and others going by the official definition of of planets which only gives our solar system eight major planets and uh therefore there's a potential ninth one out there so this is one that was uh first announced back in um uh back a couple of years ago and it was a planet that we've "Quote unquote," found through mathematical mon- uh, modeling, and that might sound odd um, because mostly we've discovered planets through um, sim- simply seeing them. When we discovered Uranus and Neptune by observing them with telescopes, and then Pluto as well. But Pluto, even though it's not technically considered a planet anymore, is really a precursor to wh- how we think can think of the search for Planet Nine. Um, So, when we found Pluto, we found it by looking at orbital characteristics of Neptune and what we call perturbations, which are deviations from what we would expect a planet's orbit to be. So, by looking at those inconsistencies with Neptune, we were able to say, okay, there has to be something else. affecting Neptune's orbit, and that gave us the ability to then go look in certain locations for Pluto, which we eventually found. And that's much the same way the search for Planet Nine is is unfolding. So there are many, many objects way, way out in the solar system beyond Neptune, and they're called trans-Neptunian objects or extreme trans-Neptunian objects. The extreme not meaning they're like muscle heads or energy-drinking planets or, or, or <laughs> planetary bodies, but but that they're way, way, way far out there at the extreme edges of of the solar system. So when we started to find these extreme trans objects, we noted that their orbits were highly, highly elliptical, meaning that they came far closer to the sun than they did and, and, and went far, far, far out from there. So their orbits were not circular, like, more or less like Earth's is. So When we started to find these objects, we realized that something odd was happening. Something had either in the past or still was exerting some type of major gravitational force on them to take their orbits into these highly elongated shapes. And the more and more of these objects we started to find, the more and more we realized that there was a pattern to them. Now, that pattern originally could have been explained by multiple different things, But the more and more we kept finding, the more and more scientists began to hypothesize that it was a single body that was still acting upon them. And this led to a mathematical search for if there was a planetary mass body out there in the outer reaches of the solar system, where would it be? What would its orbit have to be? How big would it have to be to be exerting this force on these objects that we could see had some kind of correlation to 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 them. So this led to an understanding that there could potentially be a ninth planet out there, it would be an ice giant, um, technically a super earth estimated to be about 10 times as massive as Earth and about two to four times the diameter of Earth. But its orbit, unlike Earth's, that's roughly circular, is very elliptical. And at time of closest approach to the sun, this planet would come about 200 astronomical units, about 200 times farther from the sun than Earth is. But at its most extreme distant point, it would come 1,200 astronomical units away from the sun. So that's a pretty big swing.
0: So Chris, where are we at now with um, with the search for Planet Night? O- obviously, there's some mathematical Um, analysis that's been done, but are we physically going to look for for this planet at this point?
1: Yes, and and we are. So since this planet was first hypothesized back in 2015, we've been searching using optical ground-based telescopes. Now, originally that search was anticipated to take about five years. So the reason this is on my list this year is because we're going to reach the halfway point in that search um, this year, if it does indeed take the full five years. But What's been fascinating about the search for Planet Nine is it isn't just the four astronomers who have proposed its mathematical existence. They've opened up a treasure trove of data from NASA missions and from ground-based telescopes and given that out to the general public to help them search. And there's actually, through public help last year, four candidates identified through the optical telescope searches that could potentially be Planet Nine um, somewhere in its orbit. And those uh, potential four candidates are going to be followed up this year by the uh, actual science teams who are looking for Planet Nine and and training some more powerful telescopes on those areas where those candidates might be um, to see exactly what they are.
0: It's such a fascinating thing to think that we are still figuring out things in our own solar system, uh, let alone things outside our solar system and our galaxy and our universe. That it, it's just mind blowing. Just it, it gives you the scale of just how big things are in the universe.
1: Yeah, it, it it really does. You know, and and it's sort of opening our eyes and and our minds to what solar systems actually look like, not just ours but others. You know, a vast majority of the exoplanets that we found orbiting other stars have been you know relatively short period planets meaning their orbits are on the magnitude of days or a few weeks um and and we're still really searching for another solar system that looks like ours in terms of um how spread out our planets are um we're we're still kind of unique in that way um but it, just thinking about that, we could have a planet in our own solar system that takes between ten and twenty thousand years to complete one orbit of the sun, and and you can really begin to imagine what some other solar systems m- might look like, and and what we might never know about them until you know we improve our technology, or hey, maybe if science fiction turns real, one day get there to actually take a look.
0: It's really inspiring those kind of stories. Uh, moving along with uh, your list here, we, we spoke about Cassini and the pictures from Cassini, but other spacecraft delivering some incredible imagery of planets within our solar system, the Juno spacecraft. Chris, why is Juno on your list for 2018?
1: So Juno makes the list because this could potentially be the year that the Juno mission ends. Now, I know what a lot of you are probably thinking is, wait, but didn't it just get there A year and a half ago and and the answer is yes um juno successfully got into orbit of jupiter in july of 2016 so it hasn't even been there two years yet but um when juno first got there it was inserted into a 53 and a half day initial checkout orbit of jupiter with the plan being that it would complete two of those 53 day orbits and then when it swung close to jupiter again it would fire its main um engine And slow itself down and enter a 14-day science orbit, and then it would do over 30 orbits of Jupiter in this configuration um, for an end of the primary mission in February of 2018. But when Juno actually got to Jupiter, things didn't go quite as planned. Um, When NASA was going through a series of checks on the main engine and its valve before doing the a maneuver that would get it into its 14-day science orbit, they saw some readings that gave them cause for concern and some indications that um, a malfunction that had affected another spacecraft in the solar system where its main engine failed to light for the whole time to enter orbit of Venus might be playing out here since the two spacecraft used the same uh, engine. Or or a similar engine, rather. And this caused NASA to go back and review the data that they were seeing from Juno and come to the understanding that it was too risky to actually fire that engine again and go into the planned 14 day science orbit. So, what they decided to do instead was leave Juno in its 53 day orbit. And that created a bit of a difference between what was anticipated for the mission and what was now the reality so every mission has what's called a minimum mission success criteria set meaning if a mission can achieve a subset of its overall criteria nasa would consider the mission a success from a minimum science data collecting standpoint and for juno that minimum mission success required diving close to jupiter 12 times for science dives and those really close passes that it makes to Jupiter are where we get those beautiful images that are coming back from Juno Cam of the the really deep blues and purples and grays that we're seeing in Jupiter's atmosphere. And this year, Juno will reach its 12th um, science dive in its 53-day orbit, and that's coming in July of 2018. So the reason Juno makes my list is because July of 2018 is several months after... February of 2018, when its initial mission had all of the science gone according to plan, would have come. So what NASA is going to have to decide now for this craft is how healthy is it and can it continue? Because unlike Cassini, which was at Saturn for years and years and years, Juno being at Jupiter is exposed to much harsher radiation levels as it dives close to Jupiter, um, than Cassini experienced over at Saturn. So a big question mark here of whether Juno's mission is going to continue past 2018 or end in July is going to be the health of the spacecraft and its systems and how all of that has held up to the extreme radiation environment at Jupiter.
0: So Chris, moving along, um, you've got on your list that uh, uh, China has a plan to launch a space station. Um, bring us up to speed on this story. <laughs>
1: So so this is one that, that China's had in the works for a, a fairly long time. And 2018 might be the year that we see the first element and, and module of this space station launched. So overall, it's a three-module space station. And we're hoping that the first element, the core element, could be launched this year. It's, it's possible that might slip into 2019, but we're hoping that it could get up by the end of the year. And this is this is extremely important because China's budding space program um has really been something to watch evolve over the last few years from their first human flights to their temporary um, single module space stations um the second of which is in orbit now um so this is part of china's progressive plan for their space program and their space agency of what they want their crude space program to look like in the future and with an um Inability right now to participate in the International Space Station program, China has to build their own, and they have really gone all in for this. So seeing seeing their success in putting the first module up of this this year would be a a, a really cool way to, to cap off the year for China, who is also planning to launch um, their Changi 4 uh, lunar lander and rover um, later this year as well.
0: Yeah, they really have an ambitious... Um Ambitious goals for space exploration. How is that playing out?
1: Uh, so far, it's playing out really well. We we've seen China, you know, moving along not only in their human exploration program but also in their development of a heavy lift launcher. Um, it flew for the first time um, a, a couple of years ago and flew for the second time last year now that second flight was was ended in a failure but the data that they got from that is going to be invaluable in helping them uh come forward and really have a a super functioning heavy lift rocket on on their own and you know china is often overlooked in terms of their launches per year because they're usually very secretive we don't get a lot of forewarning um, and they're not usually public but but China does an impressive amount, uh, just like the United States, Russia, the European Space Agency, and and Japan and India do as well.
0: So moving along, Chris, um, also on your list, a really interesting mission that will help us explore uh, deeper into the solar system: um, Light Sail. What, what's ahead for Light sail this year?
1: Yeah, so so Light Sail is a, what's known as a secondary passenger payload. So it's not the primary. Um, satellite that is going up on on a Falcon Heavy mission this year. It's currently set to launch in the summer time frame. Um, But this this is a project that's uh, sponsored by the Planetary Society. And what it's seeking to do is understand how using a sail, much like you would see a sailboat using the wind uh, um, to propel it forward, how we can use sails to help Spacecraft propel themselves through space because of the constant pressure of the solar wind, that stream of particles that comes out of the sun and spreads out through the solar system. So LightSail is going to launch as a secondary payload on a Falcon Heavy launch later this year. And then once it's deployed into orbit, it's going to deploy this really huge sail relative to the size of the spacecraft itself. And what they're going to try to do is use that sail to progressively raise the satellite's orbit. And they're going to do it without any propellant, without any engine or anything like that, just using that constant pressure and solar wind to raise this craft's orbit. And if it's successful, it could really serve to revolutionize and reduce the cost of getting satellites into various orbits around Earth, but also for propelling them through the solar system, because this solar wind extends all the way out to the farthest reaches where our solar system meets the interstellar medium, that that place that the Voyager 1 spacecraft passed through a couple years ago. So this could really, really help us very cheaply get spacecraft throughout the solar system if it's successful.
0: Yeah, really exciting to see that mission come together. I, I can't wait to see it launch. And you mentioned Falcon Heavy. I promise, listeners, we will get to Falcon Heavy. I know that's coming up around the corner, but in true radio fashion, we have to tease you and, and stay listening to that.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, you, you don't give your best. You, you save uh, one of the best things for last, right? <laughs> of the many best things that are happening this year.
0: Well, thinking of speaking of saving for last, um, Chris, you have pretty much the last possible thing that is happening in 2018. The New Horizon Flyby. Tell us about this mission and why it made your list.
1: So it makes my list, but in all honesty, it's not technically going to happen in 2018. It's technically going to happen at 12.33 a.m. on the 1st of January 2019. Um, But it makes my list because all of the preparations for that flyby, the start of that flyby and the execution of it are going to happen this year. So... Um, New Horizons, as we all know, flew past Pluto in that historic flyby in July of 2015. And even before that flyby, its mission planners were already looking at the potential of sending it onward into the Kuiper Belt past another object that was close enough to where the craft was going to pass that they could nudge New Horizons one way or another to get close to it. And they ended up choosing a target which is so wonderfully named 2014 MU69 because, yes, um, <laughs> the, the the name is actually based on uh, the year it was identified and, and its object classification. And NASA has a, a contest underway to give the object a more... Um, a more common name than its scientific designation. But this object is absolutely fascinating. This past year, we were able to use a series of ground-based telescopic observations from South Africa and Argentina, as well as NASA's Airborne Sophia Observatory, to watch this tiny little Kuiper Belt object pass between the telescope and a distant star and that helped us better categorize its orbit, better understand its mass and its dimensions, and see around its area if there were any potential debris hazards for New Horizons um, during the flyby. And one of the most fascinating things we learned about it is that while it's very small, there's a very good potential that it's actually two objects and not one. And that those objects are either extremely close to each other or actually touching each other as they orbit around each other. So um, this is going to be fascinating, not only just because New Horizons is going to reveal what this object actually is. um, There are some indications now that it also has a moon. Um, So that would be epically cool for something that far out to have a, a natural satellite of its own. But also, this is going to be the farthest planetary encounter we have ever done. Now, when we say planetary, we don't mean that this object is a planet, far far from it. Um, it's just a, a planetary hunk of rock out there in the outer solar system. But it's going it's not only going to be the farthest we've ever attempted a, an encounter. Of this magnitude but new horizons is also going to pass significantly closer to this object than it did to pluto so we're actually going to get higher resolution images from New horizons cameras of this object than we got of pluto at highest resolution so this this is going to be a fascinating mission to watch unfold over the new year holiday um with, uh, with again all of that prep work finishing up this year
0: it's insane. It's such a cool mission. I love New Horizons. Yes, and and there's there's talk
1: if funding can can actually materialize. There's there's discussions that there might be another flyby after MU sixty nine if they can find another object that's that's close enough and and affordable enough for them to go to. So this mission is just one that just keeps on giving in in very very surprising and intriguing ways uh, and and is revealing a lot about a region of the solar system that's very, very difficult to see and observe. So having a probe out there doing these flybys is really invaluable.
0: Well, moving along, uh, Chris Gebhardt, you have three interplanetary missions um, that are on your list. Uh, Give us the rundown of uh, what you're looking forward to in 2018 when it comes to uh, exploring the planets of our solar system.
1: Yeah, so we have two interplanetary missions that are launching this year and one solar mission, um, all all of which I'm really excited to see um, the beginnings of those missions. Um, One of them is called BEPI-Colombo, and this is a joint mission between the European Space Agency and the Japan Space Agency. And it's actually two different satellites. It's one of them from the European Space Agency is the Mercury Planetary Orbiter. And the one from JAXA, which is the Japan Space Agency, is the Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter. And so, obviously, based on the names, these this is a mission that is going to Mercury. And Mercury was recently explored by NASA's Messenger spacecraft, which ended its mission, um, and over the course of the time in orbit, revealed fascinating things about Mercury, including the 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 presence of of signatures of water ice in shadowed craters on mercury which when you think of how close mercury is to the sun your first instinct is to go no way it's way too hot and mercury doesn't have an a, you know a, a tenable atmosphere but um, those permanently shadowed regions on on mercury get re- really really cold and messenger found some indications that there's that there's water there Um, And Messenger really, in in a lot of ways, paved the way for this BepiColombo mission. So um, the primary purpose of these two spacecrafts will be to comprehensively study Mercury, including its magnetic field, its magnetosphere, its interior structure, and its surface. Um, So all around a very holistic mission to Mercury. And the two spacecraft will be in very different orbits from one another. So they'll be looking for different elements and then that that data will be combined together to really help shed light on what's going on and what we are seeing in mercury now this mission is scheduled to launch um in october of this year aboard an Ariane 5 rocket from south america but it'll take many many years to get it to mercury because mercury is a very complicated planet to get to you have to be going fast enough to escape Earth's velocity, but not so fast that you can't slow down. So, while it's going to, be, while it's why it's going to launch in October of 2018, it's not actually going to arrive at Mercury until December of 2025, and on its way to Mercury, it will actually fly by Earth once after launch and then fly by Venus twice and then actually do six flybys of Mercury before its uh, trajectory will allow the two spacecraft to enter orbit of the closest planet to our sun.
0: Very interesting. That'll be a fun mission to watch for. Um, What other interplanetary missions are are you looking forward to? So,
1: The other interplanetary mission um, is the Mars Insight mission. This is a lander... um, Called interior exploration using seismic investigations, geodesy, and heat transport at Mars. Um,
0: Beautiful delivery, Chris.
1: Yes, I, I, I practiced that in the mirror a lot this morning. Um, <laughs> it's it's really a big fancy way of saying this is a this is a mission to study the interior and the subsurface elements of Mars. Um, And this was a mission that was actually supposed to launch a couple of years ago in March of 2016. But Mm -hmm. its primary science instrument experienced a failure in 2015, which forced NASA to delay the launch to the next available interplanetary window, which opens about every 26 months. So this mission is targeting launch on the 5th of May of this year and what makes it fascinating and very different from the other mars missions is that it's not launching from florida this one is actually launching from vandenberg air force base in california it'll be the first u.s interplanetary mission to not launch from florida Um, so that's that's a very unique element to this mission um which is going to be on the equatorial region of mars Um, and it's really going to help bring a lot of understanding about the formation of the solar system's terrestrial planets and as well as earth's moon and it's using some technology from a previous mars mission the mars phoenix lander which was the polar lander equivalent to this equatorial land area um, and what's also really cool about it is that there are cube going along for the ride to mars on this mission And these CubeSats will be deployed um, while InSight is approaching the Martian atmosphere. The probes will not actually enter the atmosphere. They will fly by Mars. But what they're designed to do is help track and monitor InSight during its entry, descent, and landing phase and relay all of that data back to Earth. So it's a really cool experiment to use CubeSats to really help us maintain that direct contact with landing spacecraft at another planet, which which we have done before. Um, but using CubeSats will help alleviate some of the burden on the other orbiters and the communication systems at Mars, which will also be deployed to monitor InSight's arrival and landing.
0: Other than... Um... Making folks like you and I who are based in Florida jealous um, about moving the the launch site to <coughs> excuse me to Vandenberg why why did NASA decide to uh, uh, launch this from the west coast
1: so this all comes down to the trajectories um, and how the probes are actually and how the probe is actually going to move from Earth to Mars so in order to maintain a you know variety of potential landing sites um as the mission got closer to launch it was decided that the most energy efficient way to actually launch the mission was to go from California instead
0: of Florida Got it looks like we're heading west uh later this year huh Does indeed yes <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got one more uh, one more planetary mission uh, you're excited about. Uh, tell us about it.
1: Yes, and this is not actually a mission to a planet, but rather a mission to the sun. And this is this is one that we have never done before. So this no. is um, the Parker Solar Probe mission, and this is one that we will actually send a probe into the outer corona of the sun, um, and actually send the probe within 3.6 million miles of the sun's surface. Um, It's going to be extremely hot. It's going to be exposed to an intense amount of radiation, but it will really help us understand some of the dynamics on the sun's surface that produce those really potentially damaging coronal mass ejections that spew... Um, that spew those charged particles out from the sun that can disrupt communication on Earth, can create those beautiful auroral displays at the poles. But also for our future space exploration um, desires, those coronal mass ejections send out an intense amount of radiation that Earth's magnetic field protects us from, but that our spacecraft and human colonies on other planets or the Moon, we're going to need to understand a lot more about how those ejections happen, what the surface environments and the upper atmosphere of the Sun are like um, in order to create some really good early warning systems for our future explorers and for our technology here. So that's a lot of what the Parker Solar Probe will be doing as well as probing other mechanisms of how the Sun works and its internal structures and the internal processes that allow our solar system to exist. But perhaps what what, what's, what excites me the most about this is the technology that had to be developed and implemented to allow the probe to get as close to the sun as it's going to get. So it has a revolutionary shielding that uses reinforced carbon-carbon, which is the same material that NASA used on the wing leading edges and the nose caps of the space shuttle orbiters to protect them during atmospheric reentry. So the ma- the major sun shield is going to be composed of that same material and that will help block radiation and heat from the science instruments on the probe as it dives to within three and a half million miles of the sun's surface. And Because it's going to the sun, it made sense to use solar arrays to capture that energy from the sun. But because we're going so close and this probe is going to get so hot, we needed to use solar arrays in in a new way. So this probe actually has two sets of arrays. One that will be used when the probe is more than 23 million miles away from the sun... And then once it crosses that boundary of 23 million miles, the primary solar array will actually be retracted behind the heat shield. So we needed solar arrays that could not only track the sun, but be retracted into safety as well. And then another little solar array, a secondary one that will stick out beyond the heat shield, to continue to power the spacecraft as it dives really close to the sun, has a really cool and never-before-used coolant system where we're going to pump cold water, and just water, through the solar array to keep it cool as temperatures climb in, in, into the thousands of degrees Fahrenheit.
0: That's going to be a really, really cool mission to uh, to follow. And as you mentioned, the the Parker Solar Probe is going to help us understand Um, these uh, solar ejections that that spew radiation that's going to be important uh, for our future um, human explorers in the solar system. Another really cool thing that's happening in 2018 that's made your list uh, is human space exploration and NASA's commercial crew. Um, Bring us up to speed on the major milestones that are happening this year for commercial crew.
1: Yes. So we can finally, after years and years and years and years, say we're here for for, for these missions. Um, so let's go ahead and start with Boeing and um, the Starliner spacecraft. So Starliner is is coming right along. Right now there is an uncrewed test flight of the Starliner capsule atop an Atlas V rocket that is scheduled for summertime of this year. Now that might slip a, li- a little bit, more into the latter portions of the year but Starliner is is really coming together here at the kennedy space center in one of the former uh, former shuttle processing facilities and just this week actually united launch alliance completed something of what's known as the design certification review for the atlas V rocket configuration that will be tasked with launching starliner and that's a major major hurdle because that that says that the design of Atlas is good to go. And the overall changes that needed to be made to the craft, the extra reviews, um, the extra approvals for, you know, human rating, the vehicle are here. And now it becomes more of a collaboration with NASA on exactly how the integration of Starliner onto the Atlas is going to work and actually going through those processes this year. So that's going to be wonderfully exciting and amazing. Um, And Starliner has um, the potential to also undergo its crewed test flight this year. Um, That is currently showing at the very, very, very End of the year, according to the most recent NASA planning documents for the space station, but um, what what we've seen in in those planning documents is potentially more of a shift to NASA saying. It's likely to be at the end of the year and and sort of a more realistic viewpoint um, rather than saying, no, 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 December 31st is, you know, is when that mission is going to launch. Um, so you can kind of think of that as a as a placeholder date that could potentially move forward uh, if everything goes really, really well this year for Starliner.
0: And just a quick reminder, uh, Commercial Crew is the effort um, for NASA to launch Uh, astronauts from U.S. soil by using two private companies, Boeing um, and the other private company, SpaceX, which um, we've also learned this week of uh, their efforts um, to get commercial crew ready for test flight. walk us through uh spacex's efforts
1: yes so so dragon and and the falcon nine are uh are the second of the two that are contracted by nasa to carry crew up to the international space station and they're showing a very similar timeline right right now um so summertime for the uncrewed demo flight of the dragon 2 spacecraft and um, later in the year for the crewed demo. Um, now, w- what's interesting about these missions is that um, they will, bo- even the uncrewed ones, will go to the International Space Station and will go through the whole process of launch, rendezvous, and docking to the space station, and that's really cool and important because it's, it's the culmination of years and years of planning to reconfigure elements of the space station that were originally designed for the space shuttles to dock to, to now be able to handle the arrival of the commercial crew vehicles, um, which will use a, a standard international docking adapter uh, instead of what the shuttles used to use. So, you know, we've seen the we're seeing a whole bunch of culmination of efforts here this year, and and for SpaceX, part of that culmination isn't just the uncrewed launch of of Dragon, which again is is scheduled for sometime in the summer now, but it's also the introduction of what's known as the Block Five version of the Falcon Nine, which is the uh, crew launch rated version of the rocket that that we've seen launch many 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 times now. <laughs> um uh, a grand total of 18 last year in fact Falcon 9s went, but the the Block 5 is scheduled to make its debut in winter or spring of this year. Um right now it looks like February is the first targeted flight of the first Block 5 Falcon 9. And this is also the version of the Falcon 9 that is designed for maximum reusability. So we've seen, you know, this last year we saw um, four reflights of flight-proven boosters, and those were all um, what's known as the Block 3 version. And the Block 5, a, a more advanced version, is designed to really be turned around much, much quicker than the Block 3s and undergo very little maintenance between flights and, and be reflown uh, you know, a, 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 a qu- quite a few times here towards SpaceX's ultimate goal of reusability and lowering the access uh, and the cost of access to space. And what's important about the Block 5 isn't just that reusability aspect, it's that NASA has determined that the Block 5 version of the Falcon 9 has to launch a certain number of times before that first crewed. Uh, and, and uncrewed demo flights can take place. Now, the same requirement is made of uh, United Launch Alliance and the Atlas V, but the Atlas V has been launching in its overall configuration for over 70 missions at this point, whereas SpaceX's Falcon 9 has been an evolving design mm-hmm. in cooperation with NASA. So that's why the Block V's first flight early this year is is a very big deal for commercial crew now in addition to that you've also got um this this spring will be the installation of the uh crew access arm at pad 39a and that's very crucial because without it you're not getting humans on board that capsule uh (laughs) when it's on the pad um so that'll be a, a really major ground milestone to look for too in in the early part of this year
0: and while we're speaking of SpaceX we can't bury the lead here Chris um and just coming up in a few weeks we have Falcon Heavy that's got to be on your list right
1: oh it 100% is on my list um it was it was hopefully going to be on my list for 2017 but you know the fact that we slipped only about you know 3 to 4 weeks here is is a good indication that you know this isn't a you know, long-term dream or goal anymore. The the Falcon Heavy is is here, and and we should see it launch by the end of January. Um, Elon Musk said yesterday that the first and potentially the only static fire of the Falcon Heavy will occur, hopefully sometime next week. That's highly dependent on uh, Zuma being able to launch this weekend, and then um, the teams being able to have some downtime. And then to get back into posture with the Falcon Heavy to support that test, but um, that that static fire is going to be impressive and very important. It is the first time that a U.S. rocket has attempted to light twenty-seven engines near at nearly the exact same moment, um, and we need to characterize exactly how that startup sequence is going to work and. And really part of the static fire is going to be a a validation of those computer models that are showing with very, very high degrees of certainty that this is okay and this is going to work. Um, I'm sure we all remember Elon Musk saying last year quite famously that if Falcon Heavy didn't explode until it had cleared the tower at at the pad, that he would consider it a success. But, you know, that made for a very good headline. Um, But... You know, the, the reality is no company is going to attempt to launch a rocket, um, let alone a very, very powerful rocket like Falcon, he- uh, like Falcon Heavy, from a very historic launch pad like 39A without a high degree of certainty that this is going to work. So um, the static fire is a very important step to that. And that is really the, the last step that will clear the way for the selection of a launch date later in January.
0: And I think it's important to note just how difficult and different this launch is. There's a lot of people that are a little frustrated that it's taken so long for this or frustrated that the launch comes so far after a static fire. I mean, it's 27 engines igniting at roughly the same exact time. There is a lot that goes into this launch.
1: Yes. And, and you know, this is something that Elon has talked about as as well. Um, you know, it it's not you you 're not just putting three Falcon nines together and and bolting them together and lighting the engines and going you know what what they 've determined is that you know the the center core of those three um first stage cores had to be beefed up um, to handle the the stress and and the thrust loads that would be going through it from the two side boosters um The two side boosters are flying in configurations without a second stage on top of them for for the very first time. Um, Those connection struts, how the vehicle sits on the pad, how the acoustic environment, when you light 27 engines at nearly the same time, affects the rocket. Um, You know, one of the things that that we've heard um, from SpaceX is that, you know, I said the near simultaneous ignition of the 27 engines because we we think they're going to be stagger start sequence and to the to the untrained eye to the naked eye this will look like a simultaneous ignition but it will actually be you know you'll light two engines then you'll light the next two then you'll light the next two but all within milliseconds of each other and that's done and designed to basically mitigate the sound environment that can happen um, that can potentially lead to a pretty catastrophic failure of your system if you're not careful. Um, It's it's the very same system and the very same design of staggering the start of the engines that was used on the shuttle program by NASA, where those engines looked like they started at the same time, but they didn't. Um, So, all of that came into play and and yeah you know I think the very first estimate or one of the very first estimates was that Falcon Heavy would fly in 2013 it might it might actually have been earlier so you know I, I think a lot of people are frustrated that it's taken this long but my view on it would be you might it's, it's better to take your time and get it right um, than to to rush into things and you know it, it it's a learning game especially with all the really cool and innovative things that that spacex wants to do pushing forward um even beyond falcon heavy with their bfr rocket so all of these will be excellent lessons learned and for those of us who are patient there's going to be an epic payoff when uh, falcon heavy lifts off the pad and um as soon as it launches it actually becomes the world's most powerful rocket so There's going to be a good, good payoff, uh, not to mention the sheer brilliance of watching two side boosters come back to land side by
0: side at the Cape. And just to wrap up the conversation, Chris, I mean, why is Falcon Heavy so important for SpaceX, um, especially when it comes for deep space missions and uh, for for SpaceX's launch manifest. Why are they spending so much time working on Falcon Heavy?
1: Uh, so the, the short answer to that is this is the version of the Falcon rocket that allows for interplanetary missions. The, the Falcon 9 is very efficient and very, very cost-effective for what it does in terms of low Earth orbit and geostationary orbit. Uh, destinations for satellites, but its power limits it really to that. And and with the Falcon Heavy, you have the ability to launch missions to the Moon, to launch missions to Mars. Uh, there's even something on their website about the mass of a spacecraft the Falcon Heavy could send outward to Pluto. um And and basically the the mass of an object it could send to Pluto is bigger than the New Horizons spacecraft that that we just talked about. So this is extremely important in terms of diversifying Falcon nine or the Falcon family's portfolio of missions that they can actually achieve. It's also an important step in, in terms of being, building very big and powerful rockets, um, for as powerful as Falcon heavy is going to be, um, the um, BFR rocket that Elon talked about earlier this year for the Mars colonization and and potential lunar colonization effort is much, much, much more powerful. I, I believe the estimate there is that while Falcon Heavy will produce roughly 5 million pounds of thrust at liftoff, the BFR will produce upwards of 20 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. Um, so understanding how these r- huge rocket systems work and, and how they work on a progressive scale that we've seen from Falcon 1 to Falcon 9 to Falcon Heavy now and onward to BFR is extremely important for the long-term goal uh, and really the goal that SpaceX was founded for, which was to colonize Mars and make humanity a multi-planet species.
0: When it comes to Elon Musk, all roads lead to Mars, it appears. Um, Chris Gebhardt, he is the Assistant Managing Editor at NASASpaceFlight.com. I urge you all to click on over there and read some of Chris's work. It's some of the best, uh, most in-depth pieces um, to really bring you up to speed as to what's going on in the world of space exploration. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us, and I will see you out there for Falcon Heavy. I cannot wait.
1: It was great being on the program
0: again, and see you in Falcon Heavy. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, but join the conversation online. We've got a Facebook page. Search for Are We There Yet podcast, or you can take to Twitter. The show's at A-W-T-Y Mars, and I'm at Space Brendan. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin MacLeod. You can find more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. And until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.